Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked, and then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, and I asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its side and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, 
And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all of the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, my Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Heavenly Father, we do call on you that you would be pleased, Father, to instruct us Open our eyes to this great chapter, Father, that we could see that which, O Father, you have determined to communicate through these images, through through this, this revelation that you have given to Daniel. So, Father, we do require your grace should we come forth with a message out of all of this. So, Father, we look to you now and we ask that you would be pleased to teach us and instruct us, guide us, lead us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. I want to introduce you to a a man. His name has been changed. Um, None of you know this man, but we'll call him Tom. His name is Tom. And he is a CPA at a large firm in Pittsburgh. And he's been with this firm for many, many years. He has a lot of time in with this company, and this company has really been good to him. And like many other companies, like many other firms, uh, the, the last 10 years have been very hard on the company. And um, in fact, the, things have become so tight recently that in order for this company to stay afloat, they're actually going to have to totally restructure the entire firm. And uh, they have a plan that's uh, it's a very good plan. Uh, all of the uh, experts have looked it over, and they they agree that, it, that this plan is indeed going to. Uh, uh, it's 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 a great plan for the company. There's just one snag. Uh, they need to secure a loan in order to execute the plan. And the problem is, uh, their current books won't uh, probably aren't sufficient in order for them to uh, secure this uh, current loan. So Tom, as one of the CPAs of the firm, he is being pressured to cook the books a little bit. Now, Tom is a godly man who has walked with Christ for many years. He's also a company man who has faithfully served the firm that has been so good to him. And he's been there so long that his co-workers are like family. He knows them so well that he knows their spouses from all of the Thanksgiving parties and Christmas parties that they've had over the years. He even knows some of their children, and some of their children are in college. 
his fellow employees needed this restructuring to take place or they're probably going to lose their jobs. And several of them, as I said, they, they have children in college. That's a bad time to be losing your job, isn't it? Well, many of them are like Tom. They're in their early 60s. They're too young to retire, and their age can make it difficult for them to find another position. What is Tom to do? That's scary, isn't it? It's very scary. I could say, may we hope to never be in a position like this, but if you're in the business of following Jesus faithfully, and you probably will at some point in your life find yourself in a similar situation when it's scary. And that's what I want to take up this morning. What do we do when it's scary? How, how can we be faithful when it's scary? Now, the passage that we've come to this morning, there's a, there's a lot of application that we could make of this text, but one of the great messages of this chapter really for us is really how to overcome fear when it looks bad. How do we, how do we overcome fear when it's scary? How do we remain faithful when it becomes scary? Now, before we begin in Daniel, I think you've noticed that chapter 7 is really quite different than chapters 1 through 6, isn't it? Chapters 1 through 6 really are straightforward, what we would call narrative. They're stories. Uh, they're really good stories, aren't they? They're gripping stories. When you read them, you find yourself on the edge of your seat. Even when you've read them many, many times, they still reach out and they, they grip you, don't they? And then we come to Daniel 7, and things are really different. How are we to make sense of what we're reading in Daniel 7? Well, for the first part, it's, it, it is indeed quite different. Now, what we come to in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, 9, all the way through Daniel 12, is a different type of literature. It's known as apocalyptic literature. I'm sure we've all heard that word, apocalyptic. It comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. And because we're coming to a different type of literature, we have to change our reading strategy. Now, don't let that alarm you because you actually do this all the time. You don't realize it. I mean, would any one of us read a romantic letter given to us from our sweetie the same way we would read the assembly instructions of our new gas grill? I'm looking at your faces very carefully here. That's not a good idea, fellas, by the way. You automatically realize it's a different type of literature, and your reading strategy changes, doesn't it? It changes. It has to change. We do this all the time. Well, when we think of the word apocalypse, we often think of, you know, destruction of history. We think of... Uh, uh, gloom and doom, if you will. We think of the, maybe we think of a, a nuclear holocaust, or we think of everything ending, you know, the end, the end times has come. And if you think along those lines, you're, you're not too far off. We just need to add another ingredient. It is indeed gloom and doom for all of those who are in rebellion against God. Uh, that is certainly the case. Uh, but for those who are in covenant with God, for those who are God's children, it's, it, it, 
the, the end is, uh, is when Christ is going to bring in His kingdom. It's when the completion of all of this is going to take place. And in fact, in another portion of God's Word, which is apocalyptic, in the book of Revelation, we get this image of Jesus actually wiping, wiping the tears off the cheeks of His children's eyes. So we need to add to this component, yes, it's for those who are in rebellion against God, it's gloom and doom, but for the, for the children of God, it's a time of completion. It's a time when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a time of incomprehensible joy. Think of the most joyous thing you've ever experienced in your lifetime. And it will pale in comparison to what Jesus has for us when He completes this project that he is currently working on. So it's a time of, of incomprehensible joy. And secondly, we need to understand that apocalyptic literature is meant to be seen with the eyes. You know, after all, Daniel is reporting to us what he saw in the night visions, right? In other words, Daniel is giving to us what he saw in his dream. This portion of Daniel, along with some other portions of Scripture, uh, portions of Zechariah, portions of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, these passages are meant to be seen. Like I remember a number of years ago, uh, Tammy and I bought the, the little box set, the Chronicles of Narnia, and we bought them for Samantha. To, she's a reader. She likes to read. We said, here, read these. And I remember asking her, as she was diving in and reading, I remember asking her, well, what do you think? She goes, oh, this is great. I can really see this. I can really see it. That's how we're meant to, to read this material. We're supposed to see it. And it communicates to us uh, by words that are rich with metaphors. A metaphor is a, it's a figure of speech that uh, communicates to us by way of symbolism. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus says to us that I am the vine and you are the branches. What are we to conclude from that? Well, we all get that, I think. Jesus is speaking by way of figures of speech. He's speaking by way of metaphors. Does, is anybody expecting when you get to heaven to see Jesus and he'd be a big branch or a big vine rather? No, we realize that Jesus is pointing to something. And, and by the way, does anyone here think you're a branch? Literally? No. But I hope that we're all branches metaphorically. Meaning that I hope we've all been grafted in to the vine. What does the vine communicate to us? What is the vine that gathers the moisture from the ground and the nutrients from the ground and supplies that life-giving nutrition to the branches, right? You see how this powerfully conveys an idea that otherwise might be very difficult to teach. But with that metaphor, we get it, don't we? And that's what we should expect from this literature so apocalyptic literature is rich in metaphors and images that can communicate to our, uh, our sense of sight, if you will. And because of its use of symbols, it's a, it's a very highly mysterious type of literature, isn't it? I mean, as we read this chapter, could you not help but be struck by the level of mystery there? I think probably every one of us has went by, but what does that mean? What does that mean? 
What does that mean? Do you like mystery? I like mysteries. We got us a great mystery here before us, don't we? Now, with these brief words, let's, uh, let's jump in. If we go back to verse 1, if you go to verse 1 with me, you'll first thing you'll notice, which is pretty easy for us to notice, is that the text takes us back in time. And this is important when you're reading your Bible, by the way, to pay attention to the time frame, the timeline. Uh, as English readers in 21st century America, we pick up books and we read and we kind of almost expectedly think, okay, we're starting at the beginning. And as each chapter goes, each chapter comes and goes, we're, we're advancing in time, right? That's a pretty logical assumption, but it's not one we want to bring to Scripture all the time. As we're told in verse 1 that these things take place when Belshazzar was still king of Babylon. Now, what's that saying to us? Well, that's saying to us that chapter 7, actually, in terms of chronology, in terms of time, takes us clear back before chapter 5. Chapter 5, if you'll recall, was a record of King Belshazzar's last evening. Remember the big party he had? He lost his life that night, didn't he? Chapter 7 takes us to his first year of his reign. So chapter 7, in terms of time, is taking us somewhere between chapters 4, when Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, was king of Babylon, and chapter 5, when Babylon is sacked by the, by the Medes and the Persians. You see how quickly you just turn the page and you're back in time. Now, secondly, we're told that Daniel receives revelation from God by way of a dream. In fact, this dream is in many ways more like a nightmare. Verse 12 tells us that in his dream, if you look there with me, the four winds were stirring up the great sea. You see that passage? The four winds were stirring up the great sea. Having vacationed with my family many times at the Outer Banks, uh, we typically, when we go to the Outer Banks, we go about this time of the year. We go after, after uh, Labor Day. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to go down there then, but one of the problems is you, you could be dodging hurricanes. It's hurricane season. And we've been down there when there were, when there were hurricanes, uh, not actually coming inland and threatening us, but I remember one particular year we were down there, and there was a hurricane in the, in the area, and it was only, a, I don't know, 180 miles away, something like that. And if you went to the beach, oh my goodness, you could see the effects of it. I mean, it was really something to watch, those waves just pounding against the, uh, the, the, the shore. And, you know, it's absolutely amazing that anybody has to be told not to get in the water. But they have these flags they put out, you know, don't get in the water, doy. I mean, these waves could carry you out into the ocean and slam you right down on the face of it. I mean, sometimes waves, when you're, when you're on those little boogie boards and things can do that to you, and you can't get up. Can you imagine being out there and that kind of stuff? Well, when we come to Daniel, what Daniel sees goes much further than that. What Daniel is seeing is these enormous waves that are being carried by these four winds. Notice the word four, the number four. You know, numbers in apocalyptic literature are also used figuratively, symbolically. The number four, they're coming from all directions. This is a number of universality. It's, it's, it's just complete chaos. The, the, the waters are just 
They're, the waves are huge and the winds are just going in complete chaos here. And uh, it's, it's horrifying. Let me give you an example of another metaphor that's being used here. Notice the sea. The four winds were stirring up the great sea. Uh, that's also being used as a metaphor. The sea is often used as a metaphor for chaotic evil and rebellion against God and against His church. Let me give you an example here that uses this imagery in a positive light. It, it also comes from apocalyptic literature. It comes from the writings of John in the book of Revelation chapter 4, where John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And listen to verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What's John mean with that image? A sea of glass like crystal. It's the exact opposite of what we see in Daniel. In Daniel, we see all this chaos and this evil and this rebellion and these waves just being tossed in all kinds of directions. But before the very throne of Almighty God, we see the sea again. But the surface of it is so calm and so subdued and so surrendered and tamed that it's like a sea of glass. It's like crystal. In other words, God is in control. He's tamed it. That's not the case in, it's not the case in Daniel. No, 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 no. What Daniel sees is this chaos, this rebellion, this this. The, these waves that would look more like what my grandfather has described in World War II when he was aboard a destroyer in the Pacific Ocean. He said they were in a typhoon that was so, so massive that they were in convoy with five other ships and they couldn't see each other the whole time the storm was going by. You've seen those ships. Those ships are huge. They had to watch each other on radar because they didn't know where each other was. That's what Daniel was seeing. Powerful, chaotic, violent, evil, and terrifying rebellion is what this imagery is all about. And as if this wasn't scary enough, verse 3 tells us, out of the sea came four great beasts. You see the number four again. And hold on to that number. Four great beasts. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings. The second like a bear with three ribs in its teeth. The third like a winged leopard. And the fourth... You know, Daniel doesn't have really any, anything to compare the fourth to. He doesn't make any references to creation, really, as he's trying to compare the fourth. It's indescribable. He says that it's terrifying, exceedingly strong. Verse 7, if you look there with me, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And Daniel is amazed. It's almost like he's mesmerized by these horns. He's locked in on these horns. He's staring at these horns. In verse 8, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which 
three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay. What are we to make of all of this? If, if you're a little confused by it, don't feel bad. Daniel's confused too. In fact, Daniel's not only horrified, he's, he's perplexed. In verse 16, he approaches one of those who stood by there. He asks him to explain it. And uh, this person responds saying, These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. Four kings. Later in the passage, we're told that these are also kingdoms. The king and the kingdom is related so closely that we could speak kind of, we, we could substitute king and kingdom pretty much any time through this. These are four kingdoms, four kings that will come up out of the earth. And then he says in verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Okay, let's... Let's take what we have here. Let's see what we can put together with, with what we have. Let's, let's apply these words that have just been given to us by the one who was standing by. And let's apply it to the imagery that we have so far. We have four great beasts. And we're told that these beasts represent kings or kingdoms that will come up out of the earth, right? Everybody with me so far? Uh, we have a, a lion with eagle's wings. Uh, we have a bear with three ribs in its teeth. We have a leopard that has wings. And we have this other beast that is just indescribable. Uh, it's, it's completely indescribable. It's a, it's, it, we'll call it an indescribable monstrosity with horns. Let's call it that. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, we'll call it that. Now, what is this imagery communicating to us? Well, first and foremost, what it's communicating to us, there's nothing like these beasts, really, in God's creation, is there? I mean, last I checked, lions don't have wings like an eagle. Now, we, might, we, we can envision a bear with ribs in its teeth. That much is pretty easy. But what about a leopard with wings? What about a creature with 11 horns? Uh, uh, what, 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 what about all of that? Well, there, there's really, there's nothing like that in the created order. And especially when we see that, you know, the lion, the lion has human-like characteristics. In fact, we could probably look through all of these and see some human-like characteristics in all of them if we had time. I don't, I don't want to flood you with that many details this morning, but we do see that the, the lion, it gets up and walks on two feet like a man, doesn't it? And it's given the mind of a man. Well, last I checked, lions don't walk around quite like we do. And they don't have the mind uh, of a human. So in short, I mean, what we're to see is these are grotesque distortions of what God has created. Uh, they're grotesque distortions of, of His created order. They're chaotic, they're raging, they're evil, they're rebellious monstrosities. Uh, but there's another sense when we look at these things where we say, you know what, they, they are kind of like what God's created. I mean, the lion, the eagle, the bear. When Daniel brings those up, we've we got an image in our mind, don't we? We can all see a lion, can't we? We can see a bear. We can see a leopard. And from the gist of these three things, we can maybe start to imagine this fourth beast, 
I don't think we can see it. But we understand from the other three. These are, these are predators. These are, these are animals of prey. These are animals that strike fear and terror in those who come face to face with them, aren't they? It's scary. I don't know about you. I mean, if you're camping out in the woods, one of the last things you want to see is these three characters, a, a bear, especially a bear with ribs in its teeth. They wouldn't want to see a bear, especially when the only thing between you and the bear is a tent. That's no good. I, I really don't even want to be in a cabin and see a bear. That means I'm kind of stuck in the cabin. I don't like being stuck in the cabin. Some of these great and powerful animals have horns. I mean, we can, as we look at this beast, it's indescribable. It does have horns, and we can think of other creatures that have horns, like a bull. You know, you can think of the, you can think of the, the bullfighter, you know. What's the whole lure of that? Well, that, that bull is a powerful creature that's got these big horns, isn't it? And I mean, when it's ticked off, what's it do? It puts its head down and it charges, doesn't it? Imagine 11 of those coming at you. We can see that it's quite scary. Now, there's a temptation here to want to identify these beasts. I mean, we're all asking, okay, who are they? Who are these beasts? You know, we ask that question. There's a temptation to want to try to identify them. The traditional view is that the lion is Babylon, the bear is Medo-Persia, and that the leopard with the wings is Alexander the Great, uh, which would be you know, the, the Alexander the Great's dynasty, which would be Greece, and then this indescribable beast is Rome. That's the traditional view on this. There's an, another view, a second view that's very similar. The lion is Babylon, the bear is the Medes, the leopard is Persia, and the indescribable beast is Alexander the Great. Now, I think the problem with all of these views is this. The... the the language seems to extend all the way till Christ's return. And uh, in terms of Rome, I mean, Rome has is, is come and it's gone. And uh, I, I don't know of any Romans running around right now, do you? And in terms of Alexander the Great's dynasty, that's come and it's gone. I mean, Greece is still with us for sure. It seems to fall short. Uh, there's been a lot of ink spilt trying to identify these, these four beasts, and it seems to me that the options are limited only to the, to the creativity of the author. I mean, we can go down through the quarters of history all the way to the present and find similar characteristics in all kinds of, of dynasties and all kinds of countries, all kinds of nations. For example, what is the national symbol of the United States? It's the eagle. It's the eagle. You've heard the famous words, the eagle has landed. Let me share with you a view that I think has a lot of merit. Now, remember the word, the number four. Remember the number four? It's a number of universality. It, it applies not necessarily to four specific kingdoms. But it applies to all kingdoms that rebel against God down through the quarters of history. I mean, with this view, these four kingdoms represent really four different kinds of kingdoms. Uh, corporate rebellion against God, if you will, and four different types or four different manifestations. Does that make any sense? 
And I think this is why we can go down through the corridors of time and we can find all these similarities and we can point, well, there, there's the, you know, there, there's the first beast right there. There's the lion and, and Alexander the Great, you know, he's, he, he, he's the third. I mean, he, he conquered the world in such a, a fast period of time. I mean, that's, that explains the wings. And we can go on down. We can, we, we can say, well, Hitler's in there, you know, 1930, Nazi Germany. We, we can point to all of these things and we can find these characteristics. Why? I think that's the point. Scripture doesn't neatly identify the exact um, name of these nations, does it? I think what it's given to us is the characteristics. The characteristics. Does that make sense? I think it's given us the characteristics. The, the, the vision speaks of corporate rebellion in the forms of kings and kings all the way up to the present hour. And uh, this will go on until Christ returns. Well, we could say much more about this, but we need to go on. I, uh, we're not going to finish Daniel 7 this morning, by the way, but I'd like to get a little bit further than here. If we look to verses 9 through 14, we'll see that Daniel's dream takes a sudden turn. In verses 9 through 14, he's taken into the very courtroom of God. Do you see that? Uh, he, he, ex he explains, the, he says he, he saw the Ancient of Days, that's Almighty God. He sees Him enthroned, His clothing is white as snow, the hair of His head is like pure wool. Again, we're getting imagery here, aren't we? Does the Father have hair? He's a spirit. What's this imagery pointing to? Well, his clothing is white as snow. That's purity. It's holiness. And the hair of his head is like pure wool. That's, he's wise. You know, in, in, in our current culture, we prize youth, but that's not, the way, that's not the way the Bible looks at things. The Bible prizes age. Wisdom takes time to acquire. And it is the age that have acquired it. So we have these fiery flames issuing forth from His throne. And here we see the power of judgment. So what's the image? The image of Almighty God and purity, holiness, wisdom, and in judgment and power seated upon His throne. And verse 10 tells us that it's a courtroom setting. The court is in session. The books are open. Judgment is about to take place, right? Now, in the midst of this, we've got this little horn speaking rebellious and blasphemous things in verse 11. But he's judged, he's quickly slain, and he's given over to the flames. And we're told that the rest of the beasts are prolonged for a period of time known only to God. Now, I don't think anyone understands that particular passage. I've read many commentaries on it, and I furthered my assumptions that nobody knows what it means. Sometimes that's what you learn by reading all those commentaries, is that nobody knows what it means. Uh, then all at once, Daniel sees with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now here's something we can latch on. We can say, okay, I, got, I missed all this other stuff, but I've got this, you know. Well, it's good that you got this because this is really one of the most important parts. I saw one like a son of man. I know what that means. That's Christ, isn't it? What's his favorite self-designation of himself in the Gospels? What is he? He calls himself what? 
the Son of Man. That covers two grounds, actually, Daniel 13 and 4, 7, 13, and 14. In our psalm, in our opening psalm this morning, we saw the princes. Don't trust in princes, one like a son of man uh, who is destined to die like the rest of us. That's referring to humanity. And remember I said before we read it, you know, that we're going to come to Daniel 7 and the phrase son of man is going to be used in a different sense. You remember me saying that? Well, in, in one sense, it's being used the same. The Son of Man does reveal the, the humanity of Jesus. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights, haven't we? The humanity of Jesus. But the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, what's that all about? That's the divinity of Jesus, isn't it? And in fact, at Christ's trial before Caiaphas, the high priest asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You remember a few months ago when we were studying that passage, I shared with you that, that Jesus has Daniel 7, 13, and 14 in mind. And that we'll get there, we'll study that in due time while we're there. And what does Caiaphas do? He tears his... Close. Why? He realizes that Jesus is making a claim to being God. There's no more for the trial to go on anymore. You've all heard it for yourself. This man speaks blasphemy. He shall be executed. Now, I want you to notice the contrast here. All four beasts are trying to get everlasting worldwide power. They want to be on top. They want to stay on top. This is the desire of the beasts. World domination. But they're all destroyed, and it is Christ who will be given universal and absolute power, and it will be forever, forever, and forever. And there's something else that's vitally important here. Look with me to verse 18. We're told that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And if you look back to verse 14, we're told it's the Son of Man who will possess the kingdom forever, forever, and forever. And we might say, well, wait a second, who is it? Is it the Son of Man getting this... Possessing the kingdom or is it the saints of most high? The answer is both. It's, this is so marvelously pointing to the, 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 the union between Jesus and his church. Are you in Christ this morning? If you're in Christ this morning, you are so closely united to Jesus that as Jesus receives the kingdom, you do too. And I do too. So we have all these raging beasts that are trying to get worldwide domination and they're trying to hold on to it forever, forever, and forever, and they're all going to fail. But it is Christ who gets it. And guess what? It's his, it's his children who gets it too. It's pretty clear from there, isn't it? But in the meantime, the beasts will war against the church, and at times will even prevail against us. Temporarily. And as this happens, it is scary. And how does this happen? It happens as groups like ISIS rise to power. And they go around executing the people of God. It happens as false teachers parade around and distract us from proper worship of Christ. It happens as false preachers distort the gospel. These are all manifestations of this stuff. It happens as... False preachers preach pop psychology instead of the gospel. 
you know, as I'm doing my best here to try to open up Daniel 7 at this very hour, there are preachers all over the place preaching pop psychology. That's not going to save anyone. That's not going to help anyone. That's nothing more than the theories of man, which, you know, in five or ten years are going to be completely different. Because today's theories are different than last week's theories. They're just theories. Trying to get better without Jesus is silly and foolish. Parading around the world, globe-trotting around the world, announcing that we're going to do all of these things without ever announcing the gospel, without ever telling men and women that they're depraved and they need Jesus, is foolishness. And it's the mark of a false leader. It's the stamp of what we see here in Daniel 7. It's the stamp of it. Now, notice that Daniel 7 instructs us so that we'll see this and not... <laughs> Once we begin seeing Daniel 7, then when we look around us, we shouldn't see what's going on around us as anything strange. That's, what, that's one of the points here. God wants to show us what's going on so that when you see it going on, so when you see all of these crazy things being legislated in the law, you won't think it's strange. You won't think it's strange at all. It's just the beasts. They're raising their heads. But Daniel 7 comforts us because it pulls back the curtain. And we're not to let appearances of what is happening dominate us or paralyze us with fear. Let me give you a couple reality checks here and I'll close. Reality check number one, we're often afraid of the way it looks, aren't we? When Daniel looks at these visions, he's horrified. Who wouldn't be horrified? It says it's a dream, but it's more like a nightmare, isn't it? Man, I could imagine waking up from this one in a cold sweat. You wouldn't be able to get those images out of your head ever, would you? Having once saw those things. If we go back to my introduction, I mean, the evil one wants Tom in my introduction to believe that he must resort to criminal activity in order to save his company. That's the way it appears, isn't it? That's how it looks. The best thing he could do is lie. Reality check number two, the evil one uses fear to lead us astray. He uses fear to lead us astray. Tom is afraid of what his co-workers are going to think. He's afraid of what's going to happen to his co-workers. He doesn't want to lose fellowship with his co-workers. Are these real, tangible fears? Or should we just ignore them and say, you know, Tom, hey, be faithful. Listen, that's no kind of counsel to Tom. The kind of counsel Tom needs is saying, yeah, this is a real fear here. It's a real fear because you know what? Your, your fellow co-workers who you love so dearly aren't believers. And to them, it's just, hey, hey Tom, you fudge the books a little bit here and get us through this thing. That's how they look at it. Because they're part of this, this whole thing that's raging. You know, look at the sea. It's all raging. They're part of this thing, Tom. They're all caught up in that thing. You shouldn't see that as strange. Man, it's scary. It's really scary. Well, the evil one uses fear to lead us astray. And it's real fear, isn't it? It's real fear. Reality check number three. Daniel 7 pulls back the curtain in order to show us what is really going on. What is really going on is massive rebellion is taking place on a massive scale, isn't it? That's what's really going on. And some of it is blatantly hideous like ISIS slaying Christian children. They're slaying Christian children. And people are trotting around the globe pretending to be Christian leaders and they're saying nothing about it. 
But some of it is sly and subtle like our situation with Tom. Here's one. Here's one. You're in communication with somebody. Somebody you love. And, you know, the conversation just naturally, you don't plan it this way, but it naturally just comes to a place where, you know, and it's just really easy. It would be really easy right now to mention Jesus. It'd be really easy just to say a couple of things about the gospel and fit in perfect. It's like God just opened the door for you, and what do you do? You stand there silent. Has anybody ever had that experience? Why were you silent? It's because you were scared. They're real fears, aren't they? I mean, last week I was making this, you know, I was talking about idolatry, you know. We need to talk about idolatry. We need to talk about idolatry. But we also need to talk about the simple fact that it's scary. It is scary. Daniel 7 doesn't talk us out of that, does it? It's showing us it's scary. A bear with three ribs in its mouth with a command to go and devour more, arise, devour more. That's supposed to be frightening. Sometimes being faithful is scary. Reality check number four and the final one. We need to train ourselves to be afraid of what we should be afraid of and to boldly stand up to what we should fear far less. That's a mouthful, I know that. Let me read it to you again. We need to train ourselves to be afraid of what we should be afraid of and to boldly stand up for what we should fear far less. I'll give you an illustration. I think it will help. One of the things I most admire about the reformer, the 16th century reformer John Calvin, is that in his writings, he made it really clear that he would rather die a thousand deaths than displease Christ. Now, that is something that's easy to write down with your pen. But you study his life and you study his writings and you'll discover he really meant it. He really meant it. It. He was a genius who could have made a lot of money. But instead, he was up to his neck with the blood of his students who studied under him. The life expectancy of his students was like the, a, a, a lieutenant colonel in Vietnam. He was awakened many nights to crying widows who had traveled who knows how far and nothing but bloody bedsheets that were full of the blood of their husbands who were slain right in their beds. Now, John Calvin wasn't a man that was afraid to displease Christ because Christ was some kind of abusive master who the second you get out of line is going to torture you. No. He was afraid of displeasing Christ because Christ is such a loving and perfect father. He simply didn't want to displease him because he understood all that God had done for him. And he understood this, that he didn't even understand or couldn't even comprehend all that God was doing for him. I don't know, you assess things, and I don't mean to be unkind, but you, you, you make the assessment. You tell me if I'm off on this, but I don't think, I don't think we have much of that going on around here. I can't say, and I don't want to be unkind to anyone, I know some really godly people that I really admire, but I can't say that I, I really know much of this. Well, Daniel 7 
is given to us to train us in this. That's why I say we need to train ourselves to be afraid of what we should be afraid of, namely displeasing God, so that we can boldly stand against that which we should fear far less. Does that make sense? Even if it don't, just say yes for me. We're going to cover this again next week. We're just getting started here. But I want to leave you with this note. John Calvin didn't start out that way. The Apostle Paul, he didn't start out that way. The Apostle Paul was like that. He was so afraid of displeasing Christ because he loved him so dearly. But he didn't start out that way, did he? He started out persecuting Christ. And none of the saints that have gone before us have ever started out that way, any more than any of us are going to start out that way. But we're giving these passages so that we can be trained to become that way by faith. Does that interest you? I want to become this way. I'm not this way now, but I want to become this way. Do you want to become this way? Drink deeply of these things. Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you, Father, that you've loved us so much that you've given us this, these passages that in many ways are so difficult to understand. But, Father, as the Holy Spirit begins to give us uh, inklings and as you begin to teach us, then all of a sudden, Father, we begin to see. And I pray, Lord, that folks are beginning to see uh, from this passage, uh, Father, that, uh, Lord, we, we are indeed in the midst of of this struggle that's taking place between the world and, and yourself. And, Father, we, uh, we do thank you, Father, that you've engrafted us into Christ, that we could be part of the winning team, Father. So, oh Lord, uh, we pray that you would continue to teach us these things, Father, that you would help us to overcome uh, the fear that we might be faithful even when it is scary. And we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our